Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. And uh, some may be wondering why I'm not up here singing as I usually do or did. Uh, I've turned the music over to Jared to lead, and he's doing a fine job of it. And uh, and all of the all the singers and musicians that uh, play each week, uh, we've been blessed over the years to have uh, uh, such talent to lead our singing. So we're very very fortunate in that. So I, I decided it was time that uh, after being up here for 20 years that uh, I would do that, turn that over to him. Well, I hope that you had uh, a good week this week, and uh, it certainly is always a blessing to be here. I was talking with Brother Jake this morning about, uh, he's talking about how good it is to come each week and be with God's people and to be encouraged uh, in the most holy faith that we live day in and day out, and we talked about that this morning in, in our uh, families and training time downstairs, uh, where Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, and we're, t- we're to do that by building, uh, building ourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit and waiting, watching for the return of our Lord. And so uh, we do that each week as we come here, and Jude's main reason for that For saying that is to keep us from wandering off into error and into strange teachings that are not biblical. And so that's why we're here each week. So I hope that you'll do that, lift each other up and cause each other to help each other to walk closer to the Lord. All right, John chapter 2 is where we're at, and I'll read this passage once again as we finish up this first miracle this morning of the turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each one holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples 
believed in him. In John 2, Jesus and his disciples, as we have seen, are at this wedding in Cana. Cana was a small town about six miles uh, north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So Jesus would have known and Mary would have known many people, no doubt, from Cana. At some point during the wedding feast, we're not told exactly when this took place, but at some point the wine that they had been serving ran out. So Mary, Jesus' mother, came to him to tell him about the situation. For the wine to run out at, at the wedding would have been a ter- terrible embarrassment to the groom who had spent, if you'll recall, a year preparing not only a living place for his new bride, but also preparing for this wedding feast. <clears throat> so after some conversing with Jesus, Mary tells the servants to do whatever he says to do. And Jesus instructs the servants to fill the water pots that were used for ceremonial washings with water. And immediately they obeyed his command and began the labor-intensive task. We talked about that last week. The labor-intensive task of filling these water pots to the brim. There was no room for anything else. There was no additives. There was nothing added to this water. It was just water from a well. Each each town had a well of its own. And people would come to the well and they would draw the water their water for the day. And then they would take that water back to their home of residence, place of residence. Much of the water that they drew was put in purification jars like these. And they were used for washings before meals and the washing of feet when people came in from the dusty roads and then they would take some of that water and they would mix it with wine uh, either three parts uh, three parts water to one part wine or sometimes up to nine parts water to one part wine to purify the water so it could be consumed or drunk With regard to the servants, there is no hint of grumbling or complaining, no questioning. Why do you want us to do this? Do you not know that water is not a good thing to drink? <clears throat> there was nothing like that. They just, they just did what he said. There was unflinching obedience, which is, which is what we are to do when the Lord Uh, of creation commands us to do something. We should not flinch or wonder why God says to do certain things. We just do them and we leave the rest to Him. When we hesitate to obey, we are only one step away from overt disobedience. Remember that. Overt disobedience. Now, the water that um, they would have filled these jars with would have not been 
sanitary. It would not have been pure. Water in, like water in many third world countries, is not safe to drink. Uh, you would not want to drink. In fact, I remember when, when Paul and Trish went to Indonesia the first time and they said that uh, they were told not to drink the water. If you're going to drink water, drink wa- bottled water or Coke, Cola or whatever, you know, you can find that's bottled. And they did that. But in, they forgot that in taking showers, sometimes you get water in your mouth. And they all ended up sick. It would have been much the same here. This water was not safe to consume. It was used for ceremonial washings only. That is, they would pour it over a person's hands and the, and then the person would dry their hands in a towel and, and then they would eat. But that's different than consuming it into your, into your body. The microbes in the water that was on your hands would soon die away before you could consume them. <clears throat> you might want to wash your hands in this water, but you would not want to drink it. Wine. Wine was the drink that was consumed at such times as this, at meals and in festivities like weddings. Wine was the staple drink of the day. And just think what the servants must have felt or what the servants must have thought when Jesus said, fill these water, fill these jars with water and now take some, dip some out and take it to the master of the feast. Can you imagine what they thought? I'm taking water to the master of the feast, to the to the man who is in charge of the feast. And so after they filled the pots, they they returned to Jesus for further instructions, and Jesus told them to draw out some water, take it to the master of the feast. And they must have been thinking, well, well, here it is. I'm going to lose my job now because the master of the feast is going to taste this water. He's going to see that it's water, and he's going to be very upset. Little did they know what was coming. The word that John uses here for the master of the feast is a compound word, and this is what it means. It means rank or degree. That's one part of the word. And the other part means three couches. So you have a word combined together that means the master or ruler of three couches. Now what does that mean? Well, it it has to do with the custom, the Roman customs of eating and festivities. In... Roman times in the first century, places of eating, dining rooms were set up with generally with three tables, three long tables about a foot high off the ground. And behind those tables would be couches or lounging places. And the guests would come in and they would, they would go into behind the table and they would lie down on these lounging Things, what we would call a couch or a divan. And they would stretch themselves out, prop themselves up on one elbow, and the table was right in front of them. And then the servants would come in, and these tables would be generally lined around the walls, three of them, and the couches behind the tables. 
And so that's why this word has three couches in it. Uh, Generally, most feasts or festivities had three tables. Sometimes they would be long, sometimes shorter. If it was a really big feast, then they would align or they would put these three tables in different sections around the room. Like if we did it here, there would be three tables here, three tables there, and so on. And in the middle of these three tables, and the dining room, by the way, was called a triclinium, and in the middle of these three tables, there was a smaller little table called a mensa, and on the mensa is where the food was. And so the servants would come in, they would take the food off of the mensa, they would put it on the tables in front of the guest, and they would fill the cups with wine, and the people would eat, and they would have company with one another. This is how food was served. So the servants had access to the middle of these three tables. And somewhere sitting near these three tables would be the master of the feast. This is when Jesus said, draw out some of the water and take it to the master of the feast. They knew it was water. I can just imagine when they dipped into it, some of it spilled over because it was filled to the brim. So they're taking this water now to the master of the feast. The servants are really showing their faith at this point in Jesus' command. It's one thing to fill the pots with water. It's another thing to serve it to the guests. So they drew out some of the water. Take it to the master of the feast, or the master of ceremonies, we would call him, to taste. The servants at this point are taking water. It didn't turn to wine inside the pots. It turned to wine as they dipped it and then started taking it somewhere from the point of them dipping it to serving it, it turned into wine. So in their minds, they're taking water to the master of the feast until they poured it out into his cup. And all of the astonishment, you can I can almost hear the, can't you? As it pours out red. And so the process was a process of creation. They took water and it changed into wine. And it wasn't just the drawing out of the water, but it was the drawing out of all subsequent times of them coming back to the water pots, taking water out, taking it to the guest. And by the time it got to the guest, it was turned to wine. So it remained water in the pot but turned to wine as it was drawn out and taken. Jesus actually said to the the servants, draw out the water and keep taking it to them. Keep taking it. Over and over again, they dipped it, and every time 
it turned into wine. It was instantaneous. There was no process of fermentation. It was an act of creation from one who had created the universe in the first place. This is not unlike other acts that Jesus did, although this was his very first act of or sign or miracle. But just like the original creation which brought forth life and supply in abundance, in superabundance, just like the loaves and the fishes to feed thousands with baskets of food left over, the Creator supplies wine in abundance for the guests of the wedding. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do we believe that? Yes, we do. We believe it. Because it's not only because he said it, but because it's true. We are witnesses of these things in our lives. That he is indeed the bread of life. He is the one that satisfies our soul. He is the one that quenches the thirst of our soul. Whoever comes to Jesus finds food for the soul that always satisfies and drink that always quenches the thirst. The head waiter tasted <clears throat> the wine, or the water now become wine, and found it to be the very best wine that he had ever tasted. <clears throat> the other wine had already been consumed, and it, was, it would have been good wine, because that's what was served first. But now... The good wine is gone, and generally the people would have poorer wine to drink. But there was no more wine. <clears throat> they ran out. He didn't, he didn't uh, supply enough for the entire feast. And so it says that The poor wine was not to be had, and now there's better wine than they had consumed at the beginning. Notice the word in verse 10, the word drunk. <clears throat> and when the people have drunk freely. So what happened is they'd come into these feasts and they would, they would serve the good wine up front because... The people were going to be drinking, and many of them would be inebriated at these types of weddings, and their taste buds would not taste like it did at the beginning. So they saved the poor wine for the last, because by that time, nobody cared. The word drunk literally means to be drunk, to be inebriated. We would say, they're sauced.
It's used that way in, in other places in the New Testament, Luke chapter 12. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk. Same word. Ephesians 5.18, do not be drunk, inebriated with wine. 1 Thessalonians 5.7, those who are asleep sleep at night and those who are drunk are drunk at night. And also in Revelation 17 verse 2. Now, that does not mean that the people at this feast were were drunk and carousing. This was not, it had not, doesn't mean it had become a drunken party. Jesus certainly would not be party to such actions as that. However, it is simply saying that the master of the feast was speaking from his own experience. He had probably been master of many feasts where he saw people drink and get drunk. And then when the poor wine came out, nobody cared. To his surprise, it appeared that the groom had kept the good wine until last. Which meant that the wedding party, get this, that the wedding party had two rounds of good wine. One good and another outstanding. If one takes this miracle as an illustration of the old religious system of the Jews being replaced by the new and living way, then the water from the purification pots is created into life-giving wine of the new covenant. And I think there's some merit in that in looking at it that way. The water could not be consumed in and of itself. But Jesus has turned this inconsumable water into sweet new wine. Now we said last week that the use of grapes to make wine in New Testament times was common. And even if the grapes were freshly squeezed and the juice was fresh, what we would call grape juice, in the heat of the Middle Eastern time, it would very quickly break down and and begin to ferment. But this didn't, this, if it had time to ferment, or if it was fermented, it wasn't very, it wouldn't have been very much, because it was fresh. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is joy, and that's what wine represented. It represented the joy of God's provision in the, in the life of pe- His people. Jesus said in John chapter 15 verse 11, These things I've spoken to you, that your joy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. I think there's a direct correlation between Jesus turning this water which could not be consumed, which would make people sick, into something that could be consumed and would gladden their heart. Jesus does not take away, the point here is that Jesus does not take away the natural joys that all human beings take pleasure in. 
but he enhances those natural joys, bringing more appreciation than for them than those who do not know him. Everybody has, even people who are not believers, enjoy things in life. They enjoy the natural things that human beings are created to enjoy. But Christ comes and makes enhances them. Now we know where it all comes from. It's, it's, it's more joyous. It's more gladdening than when we did not know him. Kent Hughes writes, what we have here is a wedding, something to do, something of the earth, primal, basic. But what does Jesus do? He attends the wedding, participates in the happiness, averts disaster, and then supplies the joy. Admittedly, life has its sorrows. The scriptures say our Savior was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. He knew all about sorrow, but the overall tenor of his life was joy. Is that the overall tenor of your life? I remember my when my daughter uh, had graduated from high school. I think she was just married. Just a, a, within her first year, she worked at a bank. And a certain pastor in town would come to the bank and he had an account there and he would deposit, make deposits and so on like everybody does that goes to banks. And she said, I always dreaded seeing him come in because he was, he was so sour and so, um, so caustic and, even in his even in his body language he was he was just bitter he was sour that is not the way that our lord intends for us to be now everybody has times like that don't sit there and look at me like you're not one of those because i know you are because i have them too but the overall tenor of our lives are to be joyful we, we rejoice in the things that God has given us. We, we rejoice in who He is in our lives. And we, we have this joy that He has given us. It is His joy. He gave it to us. And the world should see that. I think the world has seen too many Christians who are bitter and sour-faced. And that's what they remember. Life has its sorrows, but even in the sorrows, there is a joy in the heart of those that know Jesus in the forgiveness of their sins. And they can rejoice because of the things that are theirs in heaven. Isn't that what Jesus said to do? Rejoice. That your names are written in heaven. Sometimes we forget that. It is the grace of God that accomplishes all of this. Psalm 9 verse 14. That I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. Psalm 31, 7, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. Because you have seen my affliction you have known the distress 
of my soul. See, there's rejoicing and distress in the same place. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and all utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a lot in Scripture about how we are to rejoice and be joyful as believers. There are times when the grace of God may seem distant in our lives, but our lives are made of the joy of the Lord even in the midst of trials and even in great trials. Can you imagine how the bridegroom must have felt when he realized that he had not prepared adequately for his wedding feast. I can't imagine the embarrassment. And yet Jesus brings joy in the midst of this time. Ephesians 5, verse 18, I read it a moment ago. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. So if you're going to be drunk, be drunk on the Spirit, not in some kind of charismatic, false, fake way. To be drunk in the Spirit means to be filled with the Spirit. To be controlled by the Spirit. A person who's drunk with alcohol is controlled by the alcohol. Many times they say and do things that they don't even remember doing the next day. But the Spirit does not work like that. When you're, when you're drunk on the Spirit, you're, the Spirit is in control. And you know exactly what is happening. And you're giving glory to God because of it. The master of the feast was ignorant of the source of this wine. All he knew was the blessing of having sweet, fresh wine. Now if I might regress for just a moment. And think of the servant's joy. Here. I said a while ago. That. They must have feared for their jobs. I mean, somebody had to supply this wine. I mean, these things were brought in. We would call it catering. So they're brought in. And these servants are probably being paid. They're waiting on the tables. And now the wine is gone. It wasn't their fault. But they've been told to take water. To the guests. Think of the blessing. Of the serve and the servant's joy. When they pour out of their containers. That had been filled with water. Fresh, sweet, delicious wine. They were privy to the work of God. In the lives of the people. But they were the ones doing the work. Listen, 
There is no joy. There is no joy unless there is service to go with it. Now you know that as a Christian. You know, you know that the most miserable time in your life is when you are out of the will of God and you're just doing your own thing. You're not really serving God. That is a miserable place for a Christian to be. And it would have been miserable for these servants had they poured out of their containers water into the cups of the guests. There would have been complaining and grumbling and people would have would not have appreciated it. That isn't what happened. I can just understand every time they dipped out of that water jar, that big water jar, into their containers, water, and then got to the tables and poured it and it was wine, that they must have had a sense of joy all over again. Every time. And that's what happens when you're serving Christ and you're doing it in the power of the Spirit. You're, you're, you're happy with what what the results are because the results are not yours they're God's whatever he does is is his business ours is simply to serve ours is simply to obey that's what these servants were doing they were just obeying they filled the pots drew off the water and took it to the head waiter then they would serve it to the guests one by one every drawing of water they watched it turn to wine Notice that Christ did not command the water to be wine. He didn't wave some magic wand over the pots. He didn't have some formula, magic formula. He just created it. He created it as he created it on the fly, on the move. And there was Jesus. Now let's get this. Here are the servants serving, pouring the wine back and forth to the water pots. Serving, pouring the wine. And where's Jesus? He's standing back silently watching. Doing all of the creative work while the servants are just simply obediently serving. That's what we're to do. We just find out what he says to do. We go about doing it and we leave what happens to him. And when that happens, there is joy. There's joy. God uses and does his work in the hearts of men through human instruments. This is the way the gospel goes forth. What God could have sent the gospel out in any way he wanted to. In fact, at the, in the end, at the end, he will preach it from the heavens through an angel. But until then, it's going to be human instrumentation. Human, humans, his people take his word out to others. That's how he's chosen to do it. It pleases God to use human beings to proclaim the work of grace. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what? Preaching to save those who are lost. Unless it's preached, unless it's proclaimed, 
Nobody benefits. God has revealed to us what he is doing in the world. And he has called us not only to be witnesses of his work, but followers of his ways. We are his servants, but more than that, we are his friends. We are his children. Psalm 103, verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his, his acts to the people of Israel. <coughs> Henry Blackaby writes this, Are you satisfied with merely knowing the acts of God? Or do you want to know his ways? There is a difference. Oh, there are, there are thousands of people who are absolutely satisfied with simply knowing God, the acts of God. But they don't know His ways. They don't know why those acts are what they are. They don't know the God of heaven. They don't know His character. They don't know His infinite being. And therefore the acts are just simply acts. Moses saw the mighty acts of God, but was not satisfied with just seeing his, his might. He wanted to see Him. He wanted to know Him. Put me in this rock. Pass by your glory. I want to see your glory. Think of it. Moses had seen the Red Sea part. He had, he had watched as water came from a rock that is split open. He had seen the axe. Now he wanted to know the God, know the ways of this God who performed those great acts. Moses looked beyond the provision to the person. And that's what we need to do. And when you see the person of God, you know that nothing is impossible. Nothing. Hearts, hearts can be made right with God. Sinners can be saved. Families can be restored. Husbands and wives can, can be restored together again. Children can be saved Many people in our time are just content with seeing his acts, not knowing who he is. Now we come to the consequences of the miracle. The result of the miracle is the same for all the other miracles that Jesus did. And not only that, but also all of the miracles that ever took place in the Old Testament prior to this. It was so that God's people would believe. It. I could stop right there, and that's and that's that's plenty. But let's let's unpack it just a little. John, at this point, in verse, you've come to verse eleven, and at this point, John has sort of, as it were, stepped back to look at the big picture 
of what's taken place. He's looking at the entire narrative of this wedding at Cana and the miracle that took place there. What was its purpose? Why was Jesus at the wedding to start with? And why did the wedding, did the bridegroom allow his disciples to come whom he did not know? It was because God had all already arranged all of this in eternity past to come to pass in time as he decreed that it would. And so it wasn't just to speak. This thing wasn't just to speak of Jesus' ability to navigate through a social event or to supply a need to those who were unprepared. Those are side issues. It wasn't so that he could be the one who would wow the party. Which is, I think, what a lot of people are looking for today. Something to wow them. This first miracle was a sign, get it now, to his disciples. Now, the people at the wedding benefited from from it all, but that was a side issue. This was for his disciples. This was so that they would believe who he said he was. This was the first and the beginning of his signs, John says. Of which there are eight that we find in John's gospel up through chapter, through chapter 12. These events and circumstances that Jesus or that, that the father led his son into were designed to reveal who he was to his disciples. And we see that. Throughout the book of John and in Acts, I've given you lots of passages there, but Acts chapter 2 really helps to sum it up. Listen to what, listen to what Peter says on the day of Pentecost as he preached his message and he was preaching to a, a large crowd of Jews who had been, who had been in Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Why is that important? Because the Jews seek after a sign. They seek signs. Signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. Everybody knew what Jesus had done. But now that Jesus has risen and ascended back to the Father, now that the Spirit has come, and now that they are preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the Spirit will now take those words and those things, and Peter points back and says, this same Jesus that you know did those things, He is the Lord of all. And they were cut to the heart. And cried out, what are we going to do then? Peter said, repent 
Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of the Lord and you will be forgiven. Powerful and awe-inspiring as the miracles were, prior to this, the people were not convinced that he was the Messiah. It wasn't until afterward that they began to see it. John chapter 12, verse 37, And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. John told us how it was going to be, didn't he? He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But there would be some that would. And to those he gave the power to become his children, the children of God. Now, we don't know if any of the servants who witnessed this miracle followed Jesus. We're not told that anybody followed Jesus from this wedding. And I think that it primarily was for his disciples. It appears that he left Cana with his disciples that came with him. So what was the purpose? Well, it's twofold. It was to show that Jesus' disciples, it was to show Jesus' disciples who he really was. That's number one. It would take many such times of performing such signs and miracles for them to get to the understanding that this man is not like other men. In fact, after he'd done many miracles and he's walking on the water, you remember, and they got him into the boat? They're looking around and, and they're marveling, saying, what kind of person is this? They didn't get it. It wasn't until after Jesus' resurrection and the indwelling spirit that truly they truly began to comprehend who he was. Second, it teaches us That the things in this life, that this life produces, can run out. They can grow old. They can lose their experiential and intellectual joys. Things of this life don't endure. There's only one thing that endures. And that's the eternal life that God has given us in Christ. These things that he gives and provides can be enjoyed here for a season and then enjoyed forever later. No doubt there would have been much rejoicing and singing and dancing at this wedding. Jewish style, of course. But just imagine the celebration that will be when we're called to meet our bridegroom and he takes his bride to his home and provides a great feast in which nothing will run out and there will be joy and singing and dancing and blessing forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day, for the opportunity to come and to worship and sing and pray and give and and preach. And Lord, we pray that you would be pleased today with what you have seen in our hearts. I pray that we would constantly be in confession of sins that we commit, 
that we would walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit to such a degree that He controls us. That we, Lord, like these people at this wedding feast, would take the wine of Your Spirit, be filled with it, and rejoice in You. For You are our God, our our King, our Sovereign Lord. Help us to walk in Your ways. Not just to see your mighty acts, but to walk in your ways and understand how those and what for what reason those acts were give, were given. I pray, Lord, that you would do this in your people's hearts as we enter into and have been in, but increasingly more difficult days. Encourage us through your Spirit. For the sake and the name and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.